0: return to the word is made possible by faithful supporters like you find out more at returntotheword.com welcome to the broadcast ministry of return to the word with pastor mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of god's amazing grace through the teaching of god's word And now here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. We continue our study
1: of the end times. Let us remind ourselves of God's plan. We are currently living right now in the age of grace. We are currently living in the age where the church of Jesus Christ is center stage. This is the church age. That's what you're in right now, the church age. Then will be the rapture of the church, A tribulation of seven years following that. God will judge Israel, the nation of Israel, and the whole world. And after the tribulation, it will be the kingdom of Christ. And the first 1,000 years of this kingdom is known as the millennium. Then there will be a final judgment by Jesus Christ before the new heaven, before the new earth, the eternal state, the eternal state with God. But here's a question for you this morning. Why does God have to give us a glimpse of the future? Why does God give us that glimpse of the future? Well, God teaches us the future for a specific reason, because within our hearts, we know from the conscience that God has already put in us that things in this world, they're not right. Things are not right in this world. There's no peace on earth. That's a lie. There's no peace. There never will be until Jesus Christ comes again there's no justice for all. Most marriages today, if we want to be brutally honest, are not that strong. Most homes are not healthy. There is little moral purity. Just turn on the TV for two seconds. There's little moral purity. There's little integrity. And by looking at the end, you see, we, we can know that God is in total control. We can rest in God. And we don't have to be surprised about what is coming. We can be ready to meet our Savior. We can learn to live now how God will have us live in the future. That's an exciting thought. We can learn that God has a plan for his people, that God has love. We can learn that it's our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to share, to tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the instruments that God has chosen to share Jesus Christ with other souls is his people. That's us, you and me. We as the people of God should always be ready to meet our God. We should always live in a way where we're not ashamed of how we're living. We should be living in a way where we're ready to meet our creator. Anyone can die at any moment. The rapture can happen at any time when Jesus appears in the clouds and instantly takes up Christians to heaven. We could stand before Jesus Christ today. Today. When Calvin Coolidge was vice president, he was presiding over the Senate one day and the debate on the floor was getting quite heated and one senator told another he told him to go straight to hell well that's not a very nice thing to say it's not a very nice thing to say and so the offended senator he appealed to the vice president about what the man had said he was a little shocked by this he's he started to appeal to the vice president and Coolidge was leafing through a book while listening to the debate and he looked up at the man and he just said this I've looked through the rule book. You don't have to go. You don't have to go. You don't. A true statement for those reconciled to God by faith in Christ. Hell is not our future. People don't like to talk about hell, but it has the full support of Scripture. I believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. Every word of it. I believe that if Hell was just mentioned just one time in Scripture. We would absolutely hold to it. But the Bible talks about hell a lot more than just one time. It talks about it at least 54 times. And the person that talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible was who? Jesus Christ. He talked about hell. He taught on hell 12 times in the Gospels, and he described hell in literal and specific terms. A Harris poll just a few years ago found that 69% 69% of Americans still believe in hell. And the opinions of what this hell looked like, they vary. They're not anywhere close in agreement. But the amazing thing is that the polls showed that most people believe that they would not go to hell. Yes, there's a hell, but I'm not going. That's what people say. 98% believe that they would go to heaven. Only 2% believed that they would be the ones to go to hell. An even more recent poll by George Barna shows that only 1% of Americans believe that they will be the ones to go to hell. That doesn't surprise me because we're a very arrogant people. We're a very arrogant nation. But the thing that bothers me is that churches, the body of Christ, believers have quit talking about hell. That's what bothers me. Because the people coming don't want to hear about it. Why do we need to talk about hell? Well, because the Bible talks about hell, and Jesus taught about hell, and God's justice demands that we talk about hell. We love to hear good news, don't we all? We love to hear good news. We love to hear that God is loving, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God is forgiving. But what about the bad news? Are we ever going to talk about that? That? There's a cemetery in Indiana with a tombstone that is well over 100 years, and it has the following epitaph. It says, Paul stranger when you pass me by as you now are, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Now someone was thinking, though, and this is what I love about America, things like this right here. Someone was thinking, and I would have done this. They scratched the following reply below it. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went, making America great again. You're standing at the crossroads of destruction and life everlasting. Perhaps you need some directions. Proverbs 4.12 tells us, very important verse, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. This morning, I want to talk about a very sensitive subject. I have no doubt in my mind, and it pains me, this is one of these things that I think about late at night when I'm all by myself, just with me and God, just praying. I have no doubt, I think about that some of the men and some of the women that have sat in these chairs, that have come to this church over the three and a half years that I've been here, will find themselves in hell. Eternal torment. Not every person who comes here is reconciled to God by faith. That's a cold, hard truth. Most of us have loved ones or friends that will spend all eternity suffering, tormented, apart from God. There'll be no second chances. But the subject of eternal judgment and hell comes with a lot of barriers in our minds and our hearts that we need to dump, to take up God's thinking, to settle in God's thinking about it. There are barriers that come from the way we have created cartoonish images of hell. And some of them are funny. I like them too. But we've kind of ruined our own thinking about hell. What is the purpose of hell? We need to start there. What is the purpose of hell? The purpose of hell is to torment sinners, not purify them. Big difference. The purpose of hell is not to make those who go there better people or to help them see the error of their ways so that they come to repentance. Hell is not the Betty Ford Clinic. It's not even like a modern prison where the prisoners are encouraged to become rehabilitated so that they may re enter society as useful citizens. The purpose of hell is none other than to punish sinners. It's about justice and retribution, not restoration. There's a big difference. See, in Roman Catholic theology, there's the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is said to be a place where people who aren't bad enough go to hell, but they're not quite ready for heaven yet. They're just not quite ready. And so they go there in order to be purged or made fit for heaven. Well, hell is, hell is not purgatory. Hell is definitely not purgatory. In fact, scriptures say there's no such thing as purgatory. It doesn't exist. It's not found in scripture. So get rid of that thinking. See, we have to come to grips with the fact that yes, God is not only a God of love, but He's also a God of wrath. He not only shows mercy, but He punishes. He does. He not only gives eternal life, He judges with eternal death. Society has gotten so used to this cotton candy version of Christianity when Jesus is seen as this sappy self-help instructor that when the biblical Jesus shows up, they gasp in disbelief. It is such a far-fetching thing to some people that Jesus would dare to punish anyone. But these people, I would dare say, have never met the real Jesus the judge of the living and the dead, the one who will judge the world in holiness and righteousness. And it is because of this misconception of who Jesus is that in Revelation 1, 7, it says that all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him when he returns. Think of that. The nations of the world are going to mourn when Jesus Christ returns. When the lost see Jesus coming... They will know that their own judgment is at hand. So no, hell is not a place of restoration. It's not at all. It does not prepare people for heaven. There are barriers for many people with reconciling how God could also be this God of love and a God of judgment. There are barriers in our minds because we love people and left on their own, people cannot awaken to their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And men are stubborn, men are prideful, that's what thats what we are, with hard hearts and desperately wicked. And the scope and sensitivity of these issues is beyond our short time to fully engage in, but I believe whatever light we can gain from the scriptures is absolutely vital to our understanding. So I pray this morning that even though our perceptions are limited, let us have our eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, the central issue that we are engaging is that of separation. Take that concept, grasp that concept, separation, because that's the biblical concept we're driving at. What is the ultimate destiny of that which is now separated from God? That is what the scriptures speak of, beginning with the Old Testament, to the very direct warnings of Jesus, to the apostles, and to the visions of Revelation chapter 20, Now this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. This is one of the most fantastic chapters in the Bible where literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the time span covered within Revelation 20. Let me give you just one of many, many prophecies fulfilled in this time span. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteous." We left off in chapter 19 of Revelation with Christ and the armies of heaven descending toward the earth. The King of kings and the Lord of lords crushing the wicked armies of this lost world. The beast and the false prophet are already cast into the lake of fire. But the leader of this unholy trinity, who? Satan. Satan, the very one who gave authority and power to the Antichrist, the one who will enable the false prophet to perform signs and wonders. The great red dragon has yet to be judged, and now we see Satan bound for a thousand years. So we start this morning in verse 1 of Revelation 20. The scriptures tell us, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. John saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is not Christ. It's not. This great angel of God operating at the command of God under the authority of God. And this angel had the key to this bottomless pit, the abyss. It is the home of some of the demons. Now, what are keys in scripture? Well, keys are just representing symbols of authority, symbols of authority. Because God is sovereign, he decrees that Satan is going to be locked in the abyss. And the angel has a great chain in his hands. And verse 2 tells us that the angel will lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. Satan is going to be bound, cast up, bound in for a thousand years. The devil, what does that mean? It means the slanderer. Satan, what does that mean? The adversary. Look at verse 3. Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit. He'll be shut in and a seal will be set on him. He's going to be put in a dark hole. I, I look forward to this. He's going to be put in a dark hole. And he's going to be sealed in by an act of God. And there he will rage in the most secure prison cell in the entire universe. But he has something to keep him company. He has his thoughts. He has his own thoughts to keep him company. Thoughts of when he actually served God. Thoughts of when he led the angels to serve God. Thoughts of God's throne in heaven and his own attempts as a fallen angel to seize it for himself. Thoughts of his depravity and fall. Thoughts of how he led Adam and Eve astray. Thoughts of his defeat at Calvary when Christ was victorious on the cross. Thoughts of his rule through the Antichrist. Thoughts of his future confinement in the lake of fire. He will be given 1,000 years to sit there and do nothing but think. And his rage is just going to build and build and build. In Revelation 12, Satan will be cast out of heaven. Now in Revelation 20, he'll be cast out of the earth for a thousand years. Now there is no reason in the book of Revelation not to take any of the numbers given as literal. There's no exegetical reason. In fact, this number 1,000, people debate this all the time. It's, it's, it's nauseating, actually, how much they debate it. They debate this all the time. Is this literally 1,000 years? Well, he says it six times. Six. I don't know if God could be more clear. Six times. It seems to me that the word of God is being pretty specific and intentional to teach us that Satan is going to be restrained for. Thousand years, thank you, with no chance of escape until God allows it to happen. But after, let's talk about after, because this gets interesting. After the thousand years, Satan must be released for a little while. I don't like that part. I don't like that part. Why? Well, Satan is active now. We know that Satan is continuing to oppose the work of God in the present age at every turn, every chance he can, he opposes God. And if you don't understand how important this is that Satan is going to be bound, then you don't recognize in the word of God just how active Satan is right now. In Luke 22, we see that he entered into Judas, leading Judas to betray Jesus Christ. Think of what the Lord even said to Peter in Luke 22, verse 31. And I really don't like this verse. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. Terrifying. Satan had asked for him. But how did Simon overcome? Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Before the church even got started, Satan was looking to destroy it. Satan doesn't like the church of Jesus Christ. Satan doesn't like Christians very much. Satan was looking to destroy it, and it was only the prayer of Christ that kept Peter strong. The hearts of Ananias and Sapphira we look at in in Acts 5. They were filled by Satan, Scripture says. Filled. Their hearts were filled by Satan with the motivation to lie in Acts 5 with how much they were giving to the church. 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us that Satan is active right now. Doing what? In blinding the minds of those who hear the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, deceiving the church through false teachers. And the unsaved, Ephesians 2.2 tells us that they live, what? According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So all that is to say this, don't underestimate Satan. Do not underestimate Satan. He is real, he's powerful, he's active, and he's opposed to you and the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Paul even said as an apostle of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 2 that Satan had hindered his plans to come to them. And another terrifying verse. I'll give you another terrifying verse. 1 Peter 5, 8. It should come to your mind where we are told this. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, right now, Satan is loose. He's free walking about looking for someone to destroy, someone to devour. And let's say it like this. He wants to ruin your life, Christian. He wants to ruin your life. So why do you play with sin? Why do you play around with the world? Why do you put temptations in front of yourself? Why do you make it easy for him? Why do you give Satan and his demons every opportunity to lead you astray? In Acts chapter 9, Paul was in Ephesus. Acts nineteen eleven records, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And it would be, just on a side note, It'd be good to remind our charismatic friends that in Acts 19, the Bible even says that God was doing through Paul something that was unusual. Paul was casting out demons, healing the sick. But then look at what happened. It says then some of the ignorant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know. But who are you? Who are you? Now, what was the difference? Why did the demon not fear These men who are trying to cast them out. See, the demon said, I I know Jesus. Satan knows Jesus. His demons know Jesus. Satan is always warring against God and his children. I recognize Paul, the demon said. Satan knew who Paul was, because at one time Paul was on the front line of the war for Satan. He was a man on earth trying to do what Satan himself tries to do, discourage and confuse and ultimately try to snuff out the movement of the early church and the gospel message going forward into all the nations. So the demon said, I know Jesus. I recognize Paul, but I have a question. Who are you? These counterfeit exorcists were not known by Satan or his demons. Why? Because they were not going against Satan. They were not known because they were not a problem to the devil's work. The words they were saying were just that. Words. In 1881, there was this wonderful man right here by the name of Charles Studd, an Englishman, And he was extremely talented at the, at the game cricket. And he was thought to be the best athlete in England at the time. He had become a Christian while in university years before this, but he was just living a simple life, just a simple life playing ball. But his older brother got sick and his older brother died. And that really got Charles thinking about life and death and even eternity. And he wrote this once. He said, what is all the fame and the flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? See, he had to admit that since his conversion to Christ six years before, that he had been living in an unhappy and backslidden state. And then he said this, I knew that cricket would not last and honor would not last. Nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. But see, what I like about Charles is that he put his money where his mouth is. He put his faith where his money is. He quit cricket. He quit the game in the prime of his career. And he devoted his life to sharing the gospel of Christ. And he didn't just go for as a glory hound where it was easy to go. First, he went as a missionary. He went to China for 10 years. But after that, he decided he wanted to go where the gospel of Jesus Christ was not being shared. So he went where? He went to India. Then he heard that there was large portions of Africa where Christ wasn't being preached that had never heard the name of Christ. So he came to Africa and he went to Sudan See, when I read of someone like this, who gives everything they have so that others will know about Jesus Christ, I think sometimes the devil knows their name. I think he does. Charles Studd said this at one time. He said, I pray that when I die, all of hell will rejoice that I'm no longer in the fight. That's not bad. It's not bad. Does the devil know your name? Does the devil know your name? The nations of the world right now are being deceived. It is something fierce. And the saints of God are being very careless in their faith. Very careless. And this has been going on for a long time. And I think there's an awakening. Satan is deceiving. Satan is opposing God's work. So figure out, Christian, whose side you're on. Now, one of the major features of Christ's righteous rule on earth is that Satan is going to be bound. There will be perfect peace for a thousand years. Satan's work is going to be extreme before the millennium, and Satan's work will be extreme at the end of the millennium. But that thousand years of Christ reigning on the old earth from Jerusalem will be God's perfect peace. The light of God's justice will illumine every corner of the world, and prosperity will even come. It won't come through funding government education. It won't come through social justice movements or any other reform that this world offers. It will come because Jesus Christ is present on his throne. John Lennon isn't the only one who could imagine a world to come. I can too. I could see one in scripture where Satan can no longer manipulate leaders, tempt sinners, or take advantage of the weak. The armies of the nations by this point will have been disbanded. The machinery of war will be all melted down and converted into implements of peace. Jerusalem at this point will be the world's capital. The throne of David will be there. The 12 apostles will be there judging the 12 tribes of Israel because Israel will rule the world. Think about this there'll be no prisons, there'll be no hospitals, there'll be no mental institutions there'll be no prostitution, there'll be no pornography, which probably means no more Netflix guys, I'm sorry. Because Jesus has come and the millennium is here. Even the animals, scriptures say the wolf and the lamb are at peace. No more grizzly bears trying to eat us, praise God. And the world will have one language again. Zephaniah 3.9 says of that time, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. His reign is righteous and the nations, they will obey. They absolutely will obey. Satan to be released at the end for a short time to allow him specifically to fulfill God's sovereign plan peace on earth for a thousand years, but there will be sin during the millennium. Now that's confusing. That's confusing, isn't it? How is that possible? Why is that possible? Well, it's not because of Satan, but because of the sin nature of man. So let's ask the question, how is this possible? Well, Matthew 25, do you remember when we studied that? Matthew 25 tells us a very important thing, that at the time of the sheep and the goat judgment, at the return of Christ to the earth... Only those who belong to God by faith at the end of the tribulation will be allowed into the millennium. And it will start out only with God's people. The millennium is going to start out only with God's people. But they won't have glorified bodies yet. The church will. But the tribulation saints who enter into the kingdom of Christ on earth will have natural bodies. And they will have children. Now, not all of these children will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. It shows the stubbornness of men. It shows the hardness of the heart. Christ will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem on his throne, but men will still reject him. Look at these words from Zechariah 14. It says, "Then it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth Do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. On them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feasts of the tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of the tabernacles. Now, what is this talking about? See, the people of the earth are going to be instructed to worship the Lord once a year in Jerusalem. You're going to go on a road trip. It's going to be a road trip. Okay. To go worship God in Jerusalem, but to refuse during that day will mean that you forfeit your water for your crops. Look at Isaiah 65 verse 20. It says, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. See, the tribulation saints entering into this kingdom, they will have children. And they will live a long time like the early people in the Old Testament. The earth will repopulate fast, real fast and there will be some sin. But this is not because of Satan. It is because of the sin nature of unredeemed men. And that is part of the purpose for all this in the scriptures. Without the presence of Satan, man will have no one to blame for his sin other than himself. And it will be necessary in the councils of God to release Satan after this time to show the whole universe that after the 1,000 years of Christ reigning on the earth and even with the ideal reign on earth of the Messiah, Satan cannot be cured. He can't. He is wicked to the core. And men's hearts are still wicked enough to allow him to gather an army, to battle the creator once again. So no matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, if man still has a sin nature, he's going to follow it. He's going to chase right after it. And the moment that Satan is let out of prison, people will follow Satan and go to war against Christ. God is going to let them prove their absolute depravity. Verse four in your text says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. John saw thrones and they sat on them thrones to rule and to judge. Now, who is sitting on these thrones? John doesn't tell us much, does he? I wish he could add a few words here, John. And what judgment is given to them? In the context of Revelation, I tend to think that this takes us back to the 24 elders who are said to reign on the earth. Remember that in Revelation 5.10, we saw the elders worshiping God, saying before the Lamb that he had, what, made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And it certainly fits very well with what we see in the Gospels, because it was in Luke 22 that Christ said to the disciples... And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Disciples of Christ would share the rule of Christ over the world and especially judging Israel at the beginning of the kingdom. These elders are representatives of the church, the body of Jesus Christ, and certainly disciples of Christ fit into this. Verse 4 is describing tribulation saints who refused to worship the beast and were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Beheaded for their witness for Christ and for the word of God, they will refuse the mark of the beast, not afraid to proclaim Jesus Christ, more willing to die than to disobey their Savior. And their reward will come when they are resurrected to live again, reigning with Christ for a thousand years. See, every... Old Testament saint, and every church age child of God and tribulation believer will one day receive a glorified body to live in his kingdom. But only faithful believers in Christ will have the privilege of reigning with Christ. And if you don't believe me, read Luke 19 once. Church age believers receive their glorified bodies when? At the rapture of the church. If you're a church age believer, sure hope you are. You're going to receive your body at the rapture of the church. Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers and tribulation saints that die for their faith receive theirs at the second coming of Christ, which is why it says here that these martyred dead came to life to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Coming to life suggests that they will be given resurrected bodies. But what about, here's a question again. What about the dead without Christ, not a part of the family of God? Those that are unsaved, what about those people? When do they come back? Well, verses 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead, do you see it? Did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It's a bit like the drunk man that got on the bus late one night and he staggered up the aisle and sat next to a woman holding onto her Bible, just scared and terrified. And she was holding onto her Bible as tight as she could. And she looked away, we're drunk up and down and said, I've got news for you, mister. You're going straight to hell. And the man jumped up out of his seat and shouted out as loud as he could, Oh, no, I'm on the wrong bus. A lot of people are on the wrong bus. And the bus that you don't want anything to do with is the first part of verse five. The rest of the dead who do not live for a thousand years. That's the bus you don't want to be on. Now, I know this gets a little confusing in these two verses, but it helps us to understand basically that there are two resurrections surrounding the 1000 year reign of Christ. There is one before the 1,000-year reign of Christ, and there is one after the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Those raised before his reign at the second coming of Christ includes all those who have trusted Christ. The church is already with Christ at the rapture before the tribulation begins. In Isaiah 26, verses 19 through 21 in Daniel 12 two, show us that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints and the tribulation believers will be raised at the first resurrection to reign with Christ. Those raised after, after his reign will include those who never trusted Christ. They will miss out on Christ's reign and be raised only to die. Hear this, an eternal second death in the lake of fire. Those who participate in this second death will be dying forever in an eternal lake of fire. You know, Jesus said some somber words in John 5. He said that there is a resurrection unto life and there is a resurrection of condemnation. And this is what John is telling us in these verses. And the order of the wording is a little bit confusing. It honestly is. The rest of the dead coming to life after the 1,000 years to be judged because they were on the wrong bus, the bus without faith. But then John circles back and tells us that what he'd been referring to is the first resurrection before the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Before that, this is what he's talking about. This isn't the first resurrection that ever happened It's not the chronological first resurrection that ever happened. Why? Christ was surely first resurrected with a glorified body. We know that. Transformed. First and second resurrections just has to do with this timing around in relation to this 1,000 year reign of Christ. First resurrection before, second resurrection after. First resurrection, Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. Blessed and holy if you are at this resurrection because why? The second death has no power over you. And we learn here that they shall be priests of God and of Christ, reigning with him for a thousand years. The first death is what? Is being put into the grave. That's the first death. Separated from your body. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire, eternally separated from God eternal separation in the lake of fire and eternal torment. By way of application, we can say the same thing in the church age, that the second death has no power over you. Don't let it have power over you now. You don't need to fear death, Christians. And it's talking about the Old Testament saints being priests with unlimited access to God. They have fellowship with God. Tribulation saints and Old Testament saints, they are going to serve Christ during the millennium, much like the church. Similar but distinct. Similar, but distinct. But what a privilege it is to be a part of the family of God. This kingdom on earth will be a worldwide display of Christ's glory. Just a few years ago, a leading Christian author came out with a book that says changed lives show the truth of Jesus Christ. And the author, he pointed out that one of the greatest proofs for the truth of Jesus Christ and the reality of Christ's resurrection are the changed lives of Christians. And the author wrote the following. Let me quote. He says, during the course of nearly 40 years, I've traveled virtually to every continent and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. He said, I've seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ, and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no amount of rehabilitation could ever have accomplished. I have seen ardent followers of radical belief systems turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. And he went on, he said, I've seen nations where the gospel was banned and silenced by the governments, and they have nevertheless conquered the ethos and the mindset of the entire culture. And then the author went on to list examples of Christ's power to transform lives. He mentioned that in the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all of the Christian seminaries in the libraries in the country, Chairman Mao declared that the Christianity and its faith had been permanently removed from China. Never to make a return, Mao said. But today, you know if you've studied China at all, despite all the persecution, and despite every effort to stamp out the faith of Jesus Christ in that communist nation, it is the fastest growing religion in the communist country with as many as 38 million people. This author had been in the Middle East and was amazed at the peace and the lives of the people, at the commitment of young people who have risked their lives to go to a Bible study. All these wonderful words that were written down were the words of the late evangelist Ravi Zacharias. Some of you know what went on this past year with him, testifying to change lives so the truth of Christ in his book, Has Christianity Failed You? This is what made it so hard for so many after his death in May of 2020 when the allegations first started coming out and now have been confirmed by his own ministry board His own ministry board confirmed after a four-month investigation that Ravi, the world-famous apologist and evangelist who spoke to millions and wrote more books than I can count, is confirmed to have covered up a pattern of his own sexual abuse of women around the world. In the United States, in Thailand, India, Malaysia, His phones, multiple phones, were filled with pictures to prove it. And Ravi used ministry dollars that was dedicated to humanitarian efforts to pay for it all. He wrote and spoke about the power of changed lives, but his life was a lie. It's not the first time I've seen great men of the faith fall. I've seen a lot. It's not going to be the last time we see someone like this fall, neither. I don't question his salvation, not for a second. It's not my place, not your place. I don't question the powerful work of God that God did through him. That's not my place. That's not your place. But I do want to know this. I want to make sure that my life never follows him. Down that dark road of living a dishonest life and dishonoring my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I want. But the question remains, how? And this is where the teaching of Revelation 20 comes in. Here comes the application. The devil is certainly not our friend. We know that. He's not. And the Bible lists three things that keep us from walking perfectly with Jesus Christ. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's so easy to blame the devil when we sin. It's so easy easy to blame the devil when we sin, but even when he's bound for a thousand years, unbelieving men will still sin. So let us take three principles from this that can impact how we live now here today. First, don't play the game of blaming others or even Satan or his demons or others when it comes to our own sin. Oh, it's, it's easy to blame Satan. Many do it, But he gets a lot more credit than he deserves. Satan can deceive. Satan can tempt. He can make life downright miserable and difficult to live a holy life. But he can't force anyone here to sin. He can't. He doesn't have that power. The devil didn't make you do a single thing. Your sin nature did. Your lack of maturity in Christ your lack of abiding in Christ and your lack of living out in your condition, the position, your identity in Christ that you already have. So this leads me to the second truth. When it comes to our own sinfulness, never downplay our depravity. Don't downplay our own depravity. See, as much as we hate to admit it, the Bible warns about the condition of man. From the words of Paul in Romans 7, some frightful words right here. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. See, it's not until we're brutally honest with our own depravity, even as children of God, even as believers reconciled to God by faith, that we will stop playing around with sin, getting more serious in our faith, becoming more alert to the dangers in front of us. See, Ravi's life went off track here. He was dishonest in the little things, and there was warning signs all along. There was warning signs. He was dishonest years ago about his degrees, his education. It came out years ago. He was dishonest about being alone with women much younger than him. And then one day, the temptation just overcame him, and then it never stopped. People tend to think I'm a legalist. I get told that from time to time. I don't care. Because there's many things that I don't allow into my home. And so people say, well, you're a legalist. And there are many situations in life that I refuse to put myself into. But hear me, it's not done out of a legalistic mindset. It's done out of a biblical understanding that the sin nature is powerful. And I don't want to play that game. I don't want to play around with it. Which leads us to our last point. Focus on your identity in Christ it's hard to focus on sin when you're focused on Christ. Focus on your identity in Christ. Focus on your position in Christ. We've been given the empowering grace of God and the Spirit of God working in us, enabling us to live lives that honor Him. God's already done all that. The Bible tells us that we face no temptations, but such as is common to man. We've also been told in the Scriptures, God always provides a way of escape. If We give in a temptation... That's on us. Paul prayed to God in Ephesians 3.16. He said that he would grant you, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So the choice is always ours. And I've decided in my life to recognize from the scriptures that I'm never going to be perfect. This side of glory, Angie will testify to that all day long. But it is absolutely possible. And hear this point by the power of Him living in us, to recognize from the scriptures that we can understand our identity in Christ, and we can walk by faith and leave behind a very powerful testimony of God's amazing grace, amen?
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.